0: What a beautiful weekend. What a beautiful day today. I think maybe, just maybe, winter might be over. Wouldn't that be nice? Of course, we, we do live in Michigan, so no promises there. Psalm 93. If you're struggling to find Psalms, kind of in the middle of your Bible and a little bit to the, toward the beginning. Psalm 93, let me read this wonderful little five verses that says so much. Psalm 93. Notice we don't know who the author is. It doesn't say a Psalm of David. There's no introduction. We really have no idea as to the occasion of writing. No introduction at all, just here's the psalm. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the Thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees, your word, is very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Psalms 120 through 136, a different section of the Psalter, forms a collection of of psalms known as the Hallel Psalms. The Hebrew word Hallel means to praise, hallelujah, praise the Lord, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And those psalms are, um, they're, they're used in to, to, to encourage thanksgiving, to encourage, to encourage praise, to encourage worship. They're often used, uh, sung uh, in Jewish festivals and feasts. These psalms did two things. These Hallel Psalms, they communicated, or they communicate the greatness of God, the wonder of God, and who he is, and what he has done for his people, and then they call for a response. Turn for just a moment to Psalm 135, 135, so just a few pages over, and I want to just show you a, a, a Hallel Psalm. And there are, notice there are two characteristics to this psalm, and all Hallel Psalms, there's a call to worship, to praise. And there are reasons given relating to God why God's people should praise. So notice Psalm 135. We'll look at just the first six verses. Here's the response first. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord. Is there any question what this psalm is about? Right? There isn't. Verse 2 who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of our God so you're worshiping in the house of the Lord what are we doing praising the Lord praising the Lord praising the Lord verse 3 praise the Lord now notice four because praise him why Because the Lord is good, sing to his name. Why? Because his name is pleasant, i.e. God is pleasant and wonderful. Verse 4. Because the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Praise God because of what he's done. He's chosen Israel to be a special possession. Verse 5. Praise because for I know that the Lord is great. And that our Lord is above all gods. There's no God who stands toe to toe. These other gods are fake gods. There's only one true God, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. No, uh, there's nothing lacking here. Where does God do what he pleases? Everywhere. Heaven, earth, the seas, and all the deeps. So, characteristics of Hallel Psalms. This call to praise and worship and then reasons given. And you'll find that characteristic in all of those kinds of psalms. Now, we're in Psalm 93. Turn back there. And I'll just say to begin, Psalm 93 is not a Hallel psalm. Well, then why are we, why did you spend all the time describing Hallel psalms? If this isn't one of them. Because Psalm 93 is almost like part of a Hallel psalm. In those praise psalms, those Hallel psalms, you had a command to praise and worship. Sing and be thankful because of truth. In Psalm 93, we find truth about God. There is no response commanded. It's simply, let me tell you, Psalm 93, about God. And there is no application. Again, we have no background relating to this psalm. We don't know anything relating to the occasion of its writing. But it does form kind of one part of a Hallel psalm Let's talk about the greatness of God. Let's talk about the kingship of God, the reign of God. So why was this psalm written? I don't know. It wasn't. It's not a Hallel psalm. It's not one that says, God is king, therefore praise. But because we're not told specifically why, wow, that's bright. Because we're not told specifically why it was written, we can apply it broadly. Maybe this psalm was written uh, to educate and remind God's people of the glories of God's reign. Maybe you're here this morning and you're young in the faith. And you need to learn some more about the kingliness of God and his reign. And this psalm will help you, will strengthen your understanding of who God is. Maybe that's some of one of the reasons why this psalm was written, to just simply inform God's people as to God's kingly reign. Maybe it was designed to aid God's people during worship, like today, as we think about the The wonders of God's reign over the entire creation, it it should cause us to lift up our voices in praise to him. Maybe this psalm was written to encourage uh, God's people during challenging times, times when they questioned his reign. God, are you really reigning? Because, boy, it just doesn't feel like it. Are you really in control? Because it just doesn't feel like it. Maybe Maybe that's where you are today. So we don't have a specific application in the psalm relating to itself, which means it applies a thousand different ways. So whatever your need is this morning, it's applicable to you. No matter what your situation in life is right now, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how mature you are in your Christian walk, maybe you're a mature believer, you've been a believer for a long time, you've grown a lot, and this text will still encourage Maybe you're new in the faith. You say, you know, I'm still pretty young in the faith. There's so much I need to learn. This is a great psalm to think about because it stresses to us the kingliness of God. Regardless of your need this morning or how this psalm can help you, it just pours out such truth that is amazing and wonderful and humbling and edifying and comforting. Spurgeon, the great preacher from roughly one hundred 20 years ago, said this about this psalm. He captured it well. He said the whole psalm is calculated to do three things. To comfort the distressed. So if you're struggling right now, remember that God is on the throne. Uh, Number two, to confirm the timid. If you're young in the faith, this will confirm you, strengthen you, help you. And to assist the devout. If you're mature in your walk, still there is need to understand and remember and relish the reign of God over all things and be encouraged by it. He goes on to say, "O thou art, O thou who art so great and gracious a King, reign over us forever. We do not desire to question or restrain your power." Such is thy character. In other words, you are such a great God, and you're holy and righteous. Such is your character that we rejoice to see you exercise the rights of an absolute monarch. We're thankful, God, that you're ruling over us because we know who you are, how wonderful you are. All power is in thine hands. We rejoice to have it so. We are thankful, God, that you're reigning. Whatever your situation, the truths of this psalm, should bring solace and strength. It should inform, enhance, and focus our worship. So let's note from this psalm, we learned this, that we as believers need to remember and relish the majestic sovereignty of God. Remember. And if you haven't studied enough or thought this through enough, read more. Think about this more. The kingliness, the reign of God, and remember it in your walk and relish it. Be thankful that God is king. Let's pray and we'll note this text today. We thank you, Father, for this wonderful text, this little psalm that says so much. Please, Father, use it to encourage us, to strengthen us, meet needs today. Help each one of us to realize anew and afresh that you're on the throne, that you've always been on the throne, that you always will be on the throne. That you're in control of all things. And we can rest in that. And we can worship you because of it. Thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ. We trust that he'll be lifted up today. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So we see four things from this little psalm today. First of all, the majestic one reigns over everything. Look at verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. The psalmist begins simply by, by stating the fact that God reigns. He's going to go into a little more detail further in the psalm, but he simply starts out by saying, God reigns. Now look at the text. You see those first three words, the Lord reigns? Uh, Kidner states, and I think he's right, that there should be, almost be an exclamation point after those first three words. This is almost a, a proclamation the, the Lord reigns. The king is on his throne. That's the strength of this little phrase. Now maybe, he's, um, maybe the author is thinking about the other deities worshipped during this time in the ancient Near East. Uh, uh, of course, there are many gods and goddesses, many deities being worshipped. Baal, for instance is said to have gained his throne by defeating Yom, the god of the sea. And after he defeated Yom, the god of the sea, then he was uh, enthroned on a mountaintop. Now, what does the psalmist say about God? Did he gain his throne by deposing another god? No. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. He is robed. The point is, he's always reigned. There's never been a time when God has not been reigning. He did not gain his throne by deposing another God. He's no temporary, short-term, upstart, novice ruler. He's always been on the throne, is the idea. One author says, Whatever opposition may rise, his throne is unmoved. He has reigned does reign and will reign forever and ever. Whatever turmoil and rebellion there may be beneath the clouds on this earth, the eternal king sits above all of it in supreme serenity, and everywhere he is really master. Let his foes rage as they may. All things are ordered according to his eternal purposes, and his will is done. God has reigned, does reign, and will always reign. He didn't just take the throne by, by uh, defeating another deity. That's not how it is. He's the only God. And he's always reigned. Notice verse 1. God reigns in majesty. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. Now I want you to notice throughout the psalm, the psalmist has a fondness for repetition For the sake of emphasis. So look with me at verse 3. Notice the repetition for sake of emphasis. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. He brings it to a crescendo. The floods have lifted up, have lifted up, have lifted up. He's saying it strongly using this repetition. Look at verse 4, the same thing. Mightier than the thunder. Uh, uh, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord is on high, mighty again, repetition to communicate the mightiness, the strength, the power of God. Now look at verse one. The Lord reigns this is really this is really great, the way it's worded like, The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty, the Lord is robed. the Hebrew actually reads. The Lord reigns in majesty he is robed he is robed It's a very strong and pointed way of communicating that God is majestic. He is robed in it, he is robed in it. Now the term majesty is kind of hard to translate, to understand. It refers to dignity Authority, sovereignty, power, stateliness, grandeur. In the ancient Near East and in our world today, when we see kings, they're often arrayed in the accoutrements of majesty. Beautiful flowing robes and clothes. Often in the ancient Near East, there was also fragrance, a certain fragrance associated with kings. They looked the part and they smelled the part of a regal person. You didn't walk into a room with a king go, oh boy, that guy needs to take a shower. That's not how it worked. They looked it and they smelled it. See, the point is, God doesn't just look regal. He is regal. He is regal. Roped in majesty, meaning majesty is is is, it just is what he is? It's who he is. He doesn't look the part. He is. He is as to his person, majestic and regal and magnificent and noble and august and imperial and sovereign. He doesn't just look like a king. He is the king. And everything about him is regal and majestic and wonderful. And in that sense, terrifying. In Daniel's vision, uh, uh, the scripture reading was um, Revelation 4, which communicates something of the throne room of God. And his greatness is communicated by what's happening all around him. We have a similar scene in Daniel chapter 7. Let me read to you Daniel 7, 9 through 10. This is Daniel's vision of the four beasts. It describes God on, the, on his throne. Daniel 7, 9 through 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, communicating holiness. and I, I can't envision this glowing white. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Again, communicating holiness and regality, majesty. His throne throne was fiery flames. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served Him. A thousand thousands served Him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before Him. This is the God we're talking about. Just picture the the majesty of this scene. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of individuals, of, of creatures before Him. God reigns. Also, in unfathomable strength. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord is robed, middle phrase, he has put on strength as his belt. This phrase, put on strength as his belt is literally the Lord is girded with strength. In times of action, times of war, you would gird your loins. Most of us know what that means. Maybe you're having a chance to think about that. Girding the loins, they would, they're wearing robes, right? So if you're in battle, or you're running, or you're active, it's really hard. I wouldn't know this from personal experience, but it's probably hard to run in a skirt. I don't know that, but I've heard. Hard to run in a skirt. So what they would do... it would reach down, pull up their gown, men and women alike, pull it up, tuck it into their belt, forming basically a pair of shorts. Now, I love wearing shorts. Fifty degrees out, I put on shorts. Winter's coming, I'm still wearing shorts until I can't wear them anymore because I just like the freedom of wearing shorts. I don't wear them here because my legs are not... Fit to be seen. But I wear them other than that. There's freedom of movement. Well, in the Old Testament, you, you're Jesus' time as well. You'd gird up your loins. So this phrase, girding up, the Lord is girded with strength, is what, was what the Hebrew says, is really communicating that the Lord is ready for action. He, he's ready. His, his robe is, is is strength. He's girded his loins with strength, with power. The idea is that God is powerful. The the attribute of omnipotence. He is all powerful. In other words, God's majesty, which he's just spoken about now, he's majestic. He's robed in majesty. God's majesty is not um, just a show of power. Most kings, it's just a show of power. They look the part. They may smell the part, but there's no real muscle there. There's no real power there. With God, that's not true. His kingship is armed with infinite strength and power. There is immeasurable, unfathomable muscle behind God's kingly rule. In other words, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Now, Spurgeon says this, As men gird up their loins for running or working, So the Lord appears in the eyes of his people to be preparing for action, girt with his omnipotence. Strength, oh, he says, strength always dwells in the Lord Jehovah, but he hides his full power often until, in answer to his children's cries, he puts on strength, assumes the throne, and defends his own. What he's saying is, God is always all powerful. But there are times when his children pray. And then God pulls up the robe, tucks it in, and now he's ready for action. There's never a time, folks, when you pray and you need grace and help that God's not involved with all the muscle necessary. Because he doesn't lack any muscle, he's all strength. The second thing we see in this psalm is that the majestic one reigns over the earth. Looking again at verse 1 toward the end. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. God created and sustains all things according to his plan. Yes, the world is established. Who established it? The God who reigns. Verse 1. And this world that's been established will never be moved. Now, probably the term world here probably refers to uh, the, the earth itself and the inhabitants of it. God established all of it, created all of it, controls all of it. God set the world and its people on their courses and nothing can alter his plan for them. The earth is orbiting the sun. Is that right? It's not the other way around, right? The earth is orbiting the sun. God set that in motion and nothing will alter the course of the earth apart from God's plan for it. God set your life in on a course. Nothing will change that course. God controls it. Whatever God's plan is for you, It's going to come to fruition. Involving big things and little things. Victories and hardships. God began reigning the moment he created. Verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The idea here is that God did not begin to rule recently. No. God's throne over this world he established, his throne is from of old. He is from everlasting, meaning in God existed and was reigning through all of eternity past. And in time, he created the universe, the earth, and us as well. He was always reigning. He has always reigned. There was never a time when he hasn't been reigning. He's always king. But then he created time. He created the universe. And from the moment all of it was created, he was reigning. He's always reigned, and he's always now reigned over his creation. God didn't just start reigning one day. He's always reigned. The earth came into existence under his direction and rule. One said, Thine is no upstart sovereignty. In the most ancient times, thy dominion was secure. Before time was, thy throne was set up. Let the believer rejoice that the government under which he dwells, think about that phrase. What government do you dwell under? Now, there's, there's earthly Government we are under, right? There's politics. There are things happening. No matter what nation you fly to, there's a government there. I, think, I love the way he says this. Let the believer rejoice that the government under which he dwells, the government of God, no matter what's going on here or in other parts of the world where the other governments leading nations, There's ultimately one government. It's the government of God. God's in control, folks, of whatever's going on in our world. And wherever you fly today and land, God's in control there as well. Let the believer rejoice that the government under which he dwells has an immortal ruler at its head, has existed from all eternity, and will flourish when all created things shall be forever passed away. God's rule will always be, will always be. And notice verses 1 and 2 again. In 1 and 2, God highlights, we've already seen the attribute of omnipotence, strength muscle, God's all-powerful. Two other attributes are highlighted, his immutability and his eternality. And these Two attributes are highlighted to underscore the permanence of God's reign. So notice, immutability. Look at the end of verse 1. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. In other words, God has a plan for his universe. And his plan is changeless. Because God is changeless. That's the meaning of the word immutable. God doesn't change. Doesn't change in his person, in his being, in his purposes. God you realize God never changes. This is a wonderful attribute. I just love to think about it. He never changes. He's never smarter or dumber. All of us are. Hopefully today you're smarter than you were yesterday. I learned some things. Hopefully you're not dumber. I got dumber last night. I woke up this morning in bed dumber than I was yesterday. No, hopefully you're changing, but changing for the better. God's not like that. He doesn't change. He's not smarter today than he was yesterday. He didn't learn anything yesterday. Oh, yeah, wow, I learned this yesterday. I know more now than I did then. That's not the case with God. He never evolves or devolves. He doesn't grow stronger or weaker. We do. I'm weaker now than I was in my 20s. Some of us are weaker now than we were yesterday. Some of us are a little stronger. God's not that way. God's purposes never change. He never changes his mind or his plans. You change your mind or and your plans because you learn something and you make better plans. God doesn't learn anything. He's always known everything. We see that kind of embedded in, this word, in his words, it shall never be moved. God has a plan for the world, for your life and mine, and that plan will not be adjusted. He's not going to learn something today and go, oh, I need to change the plan for Scott and Victoria. i got a better idea. We also see here the eternality of God. By eternality, we simply mean that God exists endlessly. endlessly. There's no beginning or end with God. He's always existed. We see that. Verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Now, both of these attributes are highlighted to to underscore the permanence of God's reign. So, God established the world, and it shall not be moved, end of verse 1. His throne was established of old, verse 2. And he himself is from everlasting, and this demonstrates the permanence of God's rule and reign. Folks, God does not, and will not ever change, and so He'll never leave His throne. God's not on the throne. You know, I got a better idea. Let's do something else. Oh, he's always been on the throne. He 'll never leave it he'll never be tossed off of it, never never, never be deposed by Satan though he would like to or any, any other anyone else. The one who has always been king will always be king. God's always existed, and therefore he 's always existed as, as king. He is timeless, and so his dominion, his perfect dominion is also. Timeless. So this is encouraging us. Note the permanence of God's reign. It's always and never change. Thirdly, the majestic one reigns over the terrifying forces of nature. Verses 3 and 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Now, by the way, some will look at the, the reference to um, the floods and the, and the waters, and they'll say to you, well, this is really referring not to literal waters, but it's referring to those who are raging against God. Because often, uh, the idea of, of raging waters uh, is it, that's connected to, likened to individuals, so, for instance, Isaiah chapter 17. Oh, the raging of many nations, they are like the raging sea. There are other passages that say that kind of thing. Comparing those who hate God with, the, with the, the raging waters, the angry waters. The problem is, if you look at verses 3 and 4, there's no simile here. There's no like or as. It's simply talking, folks, about large, loud, scary bodies of water. I don't like, I'm not a water person. My wife's a water person. Scott, let's build a house right there. And inevitably, the right there is on the shore with waves that are crashing. And my response is, I can't afford it. That's <laughs> just how it is. You know. but that's where she would live, by crashing mighty waters. She doesn't want to be in them, but she does want to hear them. I have no desire. I don't even want. I have no desire. Water just doesn't draw me. Now the thing is, is water's fine and wonderful, but if you're on a boat on a raging sea, it's terrifying. You have no control. You can lose your life in a moment. Uh, Just recently, I was on YouTube. I saw you know, boat uh, uh, waves overtake a boat. So I stupidly watched it. There was this big boat. I mean, this huge thing. And this, and they're videoing, and this, these waves are just coming. And this, this huge boat. And we're not talking about a canoe here. We're talking about a huge vessel. It's just bobbing up and down. And they survived it. But how terrifying. Well, that's what's being addressed here. And the point is, God is greater than than the mightiest waves, than than the the most terrorizing uh, um, forces in nature. The seas are grand and powerful. Verse 3. They're grand and powerful to the eye, to the ear, and in their destructive force. Look at verse 3. You see the word roaring, the very last word of verse 3? The waves lift up their roaring that sounds like it's a, a sound again, right? This the word roaring refers to a sound. They're very loud. That's not the word. The Hebrew word actually means pounding or crushing. So yes, they're loud. the flood, the, the, the floods have lifted up their voice, but the floods have lifted uh, the floods lift up their crushing is the idea of the end of verse three. It means just what you think it means. It, it speaks of the fact that. The waves of the sea can, can pound a boat until it's nothing but splinters. That if, it's, if the waves of the sea are pushed by a gale or a hurricane, uh, those waves can demolish everything in their path. And as powerful and as uh, astonishing and, and, and awe-inspiring, terrifying as those waves could be, verse 4, they're puny and trivial mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the the waves of the sea. He's crescendoing now. The Lord on high is mighty. See the words on high? That's the key of that verse. The point is, God's in heaven. He's on high. He's watching all this happen. These angry seas, these terrifying waters, they don't touch him. The... The water droppage don't touch his feet. He's not afraid of them. They have no influence upon him. They're trivial. They're puny. There's nothing There's, there's nothing in them that, that, that causes God to, to, to wince or to be concerned. He doesn't wince before them because he reigns supremely over them. In the ancient Near East, angry seas were greatly feared. Nothing was more unpredictable or more powerful, and nothing. There was nothing to which man was more vulnerable. If you're on a boat, if a storm comes up, you could be dead in a minute. And there's nothing you can do. There's no place to run if you're on a boat. If folks remember, God is mightier than whatever you fear most. Whatever terrifies you, whatever concerns you, whatever drives you to tears, God is mightier than whatever it is. There are no forces of nature, nothing in this world that God is not supreme over. Lastly, the majestic one reigns in integrity. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is so reassuring. Your decrees, your word, the word decrees speaks there of God's revelation, his word, meaning the Bible in this case for us. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Verse 5 should bring you great relief, great relief and great joy. The psalmist has just described God as the eternal creator and the forever enthroned ruler of the universe. No one can stand toe-to-toe with him. No one can stop him. No one can depose him. The strongest forces of nature are no match for him. If this God, described in verses 1-4, through is evil, we're going to spend all of our existence shrinking before him. If he is evil, we're we're in, we're in big trouble, folks. No one stands against him. Thankfully, the God who rules in splendor and majesty and who executes his plan with irresistible and unrelenting muscle is holy and righteous in all of his dealings. Thankfully, this is true. Verse 5 is, this whole psalm is a psalm over which to rejoice. But it's a little terrifying up until verse 5. Because if this God is not a good God, there's no place to hide from Him. There's no place to run. First, God is truthful and faithful. Your decrees, your word is very trustworthy. God's firm, and his word is firm, dependable, reliable. God never lies. He has never lied. He will never lie. The Bible does contain lies, by the way. The lies of others. Satan lies. Genesis. We have the accurate uh, rendering communication of lies. But God never lies. He's never lied, and he will never lie to you. People will lie to you. You're, you people, the best people will, we know I won't impugn anyone's character. Bottom line is, the best people we know may not always be entirely truthful. And some of them might just outright lie. But you know that there's one who will always tell you the truth. It's God. And His Word is always true. And this God is holy. Holiness befits your house. God's house is adorned in holiness, implying that God himself and his person and nature, he is holy. He always does right. He'll never do wrong. He'll never do you wrong. I want you to notice verse 2. Verse 2 stretches backward. So notice verse 2. Your throne... i got to find it here myself. Your throne, verse 2, is established from of old, from, from eternity past. You are from everlasting. So verse 2 stretches backward. Verse 5, the very end. O Lord, forevermore. Verse 5 stretches forward. So understand, God's holy reign reaches from eternity past to eternity future. And it is not just any rain or the rain of a a wicked king. It is a holy rain for all time. Now, how does this apply to us today? We just thought about God, His greatness and wonder. This text should certainly humble us, folks. You know, we're not in control of anything. Nothing. Not a thing. Not our health. Not our income. Not our car driving down the road. Our children, in my case, grandchildren. Our dogs, cats, goldfish. We're not in control of anything. We like being in control. We wish we were in control. We have none. But now we have maybe a little bit of a better understanding of the one who is in control, the one who is king. And this psalm should cause us to drop to our knees in praise and worship. We're so thankful that this God, the truthful God, the holy God is reigning and has always reigned. This psalm should draw us closer to God. Whether we're new in the faith or a little bit further down the line, it should draw us closer to the one who reigns. It should humble us. It should inform our worship. Our worship next Sunday and every other Sunday should be one that thinks in terms of God is king. And he deserves my, my singing, my praise, He deserves for me to be engaged in worship. And when I'm hearing him speak it through his word, he deserves a certain kind of worship, Sundays and every day of the week. So this should enhance our worship. And thirdly, it should strengthen our confidence in him during times of trial. Whatever you are going through today, maybe nothing, but tomorrow's a new day. Something might start tomorrow. Whatever you're going through, God is on the throne. When I was in college, there was a girl, a young lady from Canada. I had this weird Canadian accent. We loved her. She always would say, God's on the throne. I didn't know what that meant. I was a fairly new believer. I went to Bible school as dumb as a rock. I didn't know much of anything. And she would always say that. Well, God's on the throne. What are you talking about? What are you getting at? Eventually, I understand what it meant. And I think she was sometimes just saying it just because that's what she said. I'm not sure she was always contemplating what she was saying. But the bottom line is, folks, no matter what's going on in your life, you can bank on that. God's on the throne. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful little psalm. Help us now now to respond to it. This is not like a Hallel psalm in which we are told how to respond with praise and sing and worship. You just simply state here, Father, who you are. And you tell us of your absolute reign over all things for all time. And you expect us now to respond the right way to these truths in every aspect of our lives. Help us to do that now, Father. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for salvation through him. We ask these things in his name. Amen.